Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 520 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me Please and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And I want to give a special thank you to David M., who just gave the book a five-star review on Amazon.com. It says, I truly enjoyed every story in this collection. David Kirtley's mastery of the craft of short story writing is impressive. His prose is clean, his characters are well-drawn, and his plotting is efficient and spare, but not without engaging hooks and the occasional twist. I found myself being pulled through each story, eager to find out how each would end. Even some of the stories I was initially wary of due to their genre, horror, or their ostensible subject matter, power armor, turned out to be absolutely delightful. I would recommend this to anyone, SF fan or not. David, I hope you sell a lot of copies. I would love to see more from Geek's Guide Press. So big thanks again to David M. for that great review. And our guest today is Chris Matheson. He's the author of the humorous novels The Story of God, The Trouble with God, and The Buddha Story, and he's also worked as a screenwriter on more than a dozen films, including Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which is based on characters Chris created together with his friend Ed Solomon. And in this interview, we'll be discussing Chris's new book, Conversations with the Father, a memoir about Richard Matheson, My Dad and God, which explores Chris's often contentious relationship with his father, legendary fantasy and science fiction author Richard Matheson. And now here's our interview with Chris Matheson. All right, so we're here with Chris Matheson. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, and so your new book is called Conversations with the Father, a memoir about Richard Matheson, my dad, and God. So how did this book come about? I wrote uh, a piece about 20 plus years ago that was called Conversations with the Father, or it had a different name back then. It was called Chatting with the, the, the Father. And it was a comedic piece. It was kind of a variation on um, Conversations with God, which I read and thought was funny. And uh, it was also kind of, uh, my dad believed in a lot of, new age stuff and I didn't. And it was kind of a a way of um, poking at that, I guess. And uh, he, I showed it to him anyway, even though I was kind of poking at him, which I think wasn't very nice of me, but maybe I wanted him to see it. And I, I don't know what I expected. I thought maybe he'd be mad. And, but he, he wasn't, he was, uh, he was amused. He thought it was, um, funny and even sort of gave me feedback and notes on it and uh, about 20 years passed and I just put it in a drawer I didn't really have it I didn't really think much about it and then I pulled it out and I found it and I found his notes on it and I thought well that's pretty interesting you know it's pretty interesting that I was kind of making fun of his belief system and he got behind it so that sort of made me want to write about um our relationship and what happened and what it was like to have him as a dad. And it was um, because it was an interesting sort of journey that he and I had. So that's how the book came about. Yeah. So, so just to explain, so there's kind of like two books in one. And so there's this, this humor piece about a guy sitting at his typewriter and he starts typing both what he's saying and what God is saying to him. And it gets more and more absurd, and God is giving him really bad advice, and uh, you know they they start collaborating on a science fiction uh, story together, and yeah. so th- so that's sort of one half of the book, and then you flip it over and read it from the other direction, and it's this memoir from your point of view about your relationship growing up with your dad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the first part was written in uh, somewhere around two thousand, and the second part was written probably two thousand twenty. 2021, kind of reflecting back on my relationship with with my dad, which started off one way and ended in a whole different way. And so the the comedic part, written by Gordon Whitehead, is that exactly what you wrote back in 2000, or did you like revise it at all? For I, I mean, I revised it a little bit, and I I added 
some stuff. It kind of ended, um, God kind of gets enraged at uh, Gordon and, and sort of just rejects him at a certain point. And that's where I ended it. And I thought when I came back to it, I thought, well, no, I don't want to end it that way. I want them to kind of come back together um, and collaborate more and in their minds successfully. So that, that's, that's kind of the new ending. What sort of notes did your dad give you on it? Like, what did they say? Um, he, he would give me uh, sort of dialogue notes for God. He, he really liked it when, when the father would, you know, say things like thee and thou, he thought that was, he thought that was very funny and he wanted, you know, more, things like that. He he would tell me when he thought jokes were a little bit, I don't know, a little too uh, dark or maybe a little, there's a, there's a joke, uh, there's a sequence about how people come back from the dead. Many people, in fact, have come back from the dead. Um, and originally I wrote that it was John F. Kennedy who, who came back from the dead and woke up in his coffin and, and was, you know, back to life for about you know, uh, three weeks locked in his coffin. And my dad said, that's not really, that's, I, why don't you make it Abraham Lincoln? So I changed it to, Ab- I changed that yeah, to too, Abraham too Lincoln. Soon. Too soon. Yeah. And um, he gave me a joke, which I thought was uh, tremendously funny where they're, they're splitting up finally there or, or for, a while anyway, Gordon's going to go out into the world and sort of present this, what he thinks is this amazing document where he's been collaborating with the creator of the universe on a science fiction book. And as they're saying goodbye, I, I just had, you know, God say goodbye. And my dad, for some reason, changed it to chow. He has, he has God, he has God say chow to Gordon, which I thought was quite funny and utterly ridiculous that God would break into Italian for no apparent reason. Um, I thought was very, very funny. Um, and he would give, it's, it's something that I didn't end up using, but, uh, he suggested that I have these sort of interstitial things where, uh, my dad liked taking, um, the, the, uh, I think the first sentence of, of, of the following chapter of, he would use that as a as a kind of a teaser to the previous chapter, or maybe it's yeah, maybe he'd take the last sentence and he'd use it for the a teaser for the f- upcoming chapter. Anyway, he 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 liked the idea of doing that, and he suggested that I do that, and I did do it for a while, and then I, I ended up not doing it. But you know, he he offered a lot of really good suggestions. In fact, well, so why don't we back up and just explain for for listeners who may not know who Richard Matheson is? Do you want to just say? Why is he such an important fantasy and science fiction author? Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, I'm biased. It's my father. But um, I, I believe that my dad kind of transformed science fiction. Uh, he, he, he stripped away a lot of the kind of gothic, cobwebby, dark mansion, candlelight quality out of horror. And he brought in reality and the sense of of verisimilitude i am legend is probably his most famous book i think it probably is and i am legend is is really striking for the sense of of realism that he gets the sense of what what would it actually be like to be the last person alive in a world that's filled with vampires essentially people who've been infected with some kind of disease um it's and it's really it's really great you know my dad used to say to me um like his his idea of how to tell a fantastic story was do everything naturalistically everything but have one thing be off and then just play off that one thing it's it's it and it works like gangbusters when he does it and, and then he brings in science because he always wants my dad doesn't want it to be um he doesn't like things that don't make sense to him he wants there to be a scientific basis for things so there there is in 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 all of his um fantastic books in i am legend in shrinking man even even in hell house's haunted house 
book or, or stir of echoes. They, they all have kind of a, a scientific um, quality to them, which I, I think, I guess makes them there. They are kind of at the halfway point of science fiction and horror, these books. Yeah. So just to give an example. So in, in I am legends, he has a scientific explanation for why wooden stakes kill vampires and metal stakes wouldn't has something to do with oxygenating or aerating the cells of the body or something. I don't remember the details, but I remember it really struck me when I read it, how, yeah, yeah, how, how there are these scientific rationalizations for why the vampires recoil from crosses and, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. He, he kind of comes up on, with uh, an explanation for, for, for everything really, uh, garlic and, and crosses and mirrors and stakes through the heart. And, and, um, and it's very interesting. And, and he gets inside, you know, my dad's other thing, I guess you'd say, is he gets inside this central character. His best books are told from the point of view, either first person or right on the shoulder of, you know, this om, uh, omnipotent kind of viewer who's right there with this one guy as he travels through this, um, navigates this really difficult journey that he's on and uh and he's really good at um the understanding this guy and this guy's kind of psychology and the fear and the and the pain a lot of pain in my dad's work if you read it properly i think yeah now so were you reading all these books growing up or did you not read them until you were an adult or kind of what was your relationship to your dad's work yeah, no, I read them all. I, I was, I was, I, I think I started with the short stories. Um, he had these kind of leather bound copies of, of his short story collections. And I just burned through them when I was probably 10, 11, you know? And, uh, I think the first novel that I read was, uh, Hell House, which was, uh, I don't know if you've ever read Hell House, but it's yeah, yeah. pretty, it, it's pretty intense and it's very sexual. And it was, it was pretty heavy for a, for a 12 year old to read, but that was the first one I read. And then I, I, I pretty quickly read through all of them. Um, by the time I was out of my teens, probably really by the time I was 16, I'd, I'd read all of them. Yeah, I'll, 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 I made a little list here, actually, of the ones I remember reading. So I've read I Am a Legend, The Shrinking Man, What Dreams May Come, Somewhere in Time, A Stir of Echoes, Hell House, and then the short stories Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, Button, Button, and Duel. Yeah. Um, well, you've read a good cross-section of his work then, I would you, say. Yeah, and I read them all in college, so it's been a while, been a little while. Um, but they have all really, really stuck with me. I mean, I could tell you, you know, the whole story of all of those. And I guess one thing that made me kind of interested is is when I realized how many of his works had been adapted for film and TV. And I was just kind of curious to see, like, what, what was it that made Hollywood so interested in his writing? So that was uh, kind of one of the reasons I read all those at that time. Yeah. Well, he's a very economical and efficient storyteller. Um, he, he, they, they, they move. They're very clean. Um, he used to describe what he thought was a good piece of writing is like, it's like, it's as clean as a hound's tooth. That's how he used to put it. And that's how his stuff is sometimes. It's just bang, 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 bang. Um, and, uh, that makes that, that can make for a pretty good movie, you know, because a movie, you just don't have that long. I mean, you you have a couple of hours or something, and to read uh, I'm Legends not a real long book. It's only about 140, 160 pages. But nevertheless, I mean, even for I think it takes more than two hours. I think for most people, unless you're a very fast reader, um, and a really long book is they're just difficult. They're really hard to f fit into. Uh, a, a movie format and screenplays are very stripped down form. And so his already lean and economical stories, I think lend themselves really well to film because you're right. It's, it's, it's astounding how many movies have been made from uh, his stories. 
Yeah, and I mean, I didn't um, know anything about him, his biography when I was reading his works. So I think I probably would have guessed he was, you know, most science fiction writers that I've met tend to be more like skeptics and atheists. And yeah. I've always thought of it as sort of like like stage magicians like Houdini tend to be the least um, convinced by uh, like psychics and mediums and stuff like that because they know how all the tricks are done. Yeah, And I've always sort of felt it was the same thing with science fiction writers a lot of the time. But then I did read, obviously, um, What Dreams May Come. And I remember that there's this like bibliography in the back of 200 nonfiction books about the afterlife that he used his research for writing the book. And I do remember, you know, obviously from that, knowing that he, he did believe in life after death. Yeah, <laughs> in a in a big way. It was uh, a pretty fundamental part of my dad's life and his worldview. He would he would he would just call it my belief system, my belief system. You, uh, and life after death was pretty much at, at the center of it. Um, he, I you know, I, I think my dad was really scared of dying, and so I think he found a way to kind of comfort himself i guess well yeah and, and this book conversations with the father it takes the form of these dialogues where you know you you were you, you the way you describe it is as a kid you're very um you know like your dad's your 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 dad's biggest fan yeah and then as you become a teenager and into your 20s you you become a lot more skeptical and start and and it starts this long running um like back and forth argument that, yeah. that lasts basically your entire lives. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, rationalism versus new age beliefs. Yeah. Uh, I, I had no desire to um, disagree with my dad. I had no desire to get into it with my dad. I, I loved him. Uh, he, he was uh, uh, kind of my role model and, I looked up to him in every way that a son can look up to his father, I think. But I got older and I started, you know, I, I got to be in my mid-20s and and I just realized I, I didn't see the world the same way. I didn't agree with them and I didn't... Uh, I didn't like it, and I thought it was very. I thought his belief system was very fear-based, and I thought there was a tremendous amount of kind of fraudulence in 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 what I perceived in that world. I thought there were just a bunch of fakes and a bunch of charlatans and a bunch of people preying on fear or just trying to get rid of it, rather than just live and deal with it. And be okay with it somehow, as scary as it is. And so we we had a lot of. Uh, once I my I I hit a certain age, we started arguing, and yeah, unfortunately, um, we we just kind of kept arguing um, the rest of the way. Not every single time we interacted, obviously, but what had been really fun and enjoyable in our relationship, which was sharing baseball games or playing Scrabble or, or going to the movies or playing golf together, things like that. They all kind of went away. All that stuff went away. And what we were left with was his worldview and my worldview. And they clashed repeatedly. Why don't you explain a little bit more about his worldview? Because this is, it's kind of out there. Um, what's the guy's name? Uh, Harold Percival? Harold Percival, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I, I can trace back my dad's kind of fear and terror regarding death i mean it goes back i mean you it's 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 there i think the big turning point moment in fact is the end of the shrinking man where he sort of turns to metaphysics i like the end of the shrinking man i i i love the shrinking man i think it's a it's a really great book it's actually my favorite of all of his books I think it's the saddest and, and the deepest and the strangest and the most kind of haunting. But in the end, he sort of uh, uh, 
Scott Carey just kind of shrinks into a different metaphysical reality, I guess. And so for me, that's the the, the sort of subatomic realm. Yeah, it's yes, and it is scientific because it's the subatomic world, but um, it's it's not the end. You know, it's it's not the end. He's not going to shrink into nothingness. He's just going to reach different levels of existence, I guess. That's nineteen fifty five. He's searching. He's he's very uh, he's he's the idea of not existing. I think it it seems like inconceivable to my dad. The idea that he wouldn't exist, it it just he he just I I think he just can't get his head around that. And so he's looking for he's very new agey. He's very interested in new agey things. The whole time I'm growing up, I mean, there's always stuff about, you know, and he, he likes things like Edgar Casey and, and he likes, you know, there's always fate magazine and there's always all, all kinds of books around that pertain to new agey things. But I think he's looking for his, uh, the, the guiding light book. He's, he's looking for the one that can really reveal the truth for him. And he finds this book and we, you know, we used to go to the Bodhi tree in Los Angeles, which I don't, I don't know whether it still exists, but it was the, the, the kind of main sort of new agey bookstore in, in Los Angeles. And, um, he found this book called thinking and destiny by a guy named Harold Percival, who's this sort of turn of the century, um, thinker and, uh, he loved it and he embraced it and it became his Bible in effect. And he, so much so that eventually he wrote a book called The Path, which is his popularization of Harold Percival's book. Um, and it, to the degree that I think if you look up Harold Percival, if you just Google <laughs> Harold Percival, uh, you, you look at his Wikipedia entry, it, it it will basically say that his his greatest adherent in uh, in the world is Richard Matheson, which I think is true. And you know the book is is ridiculous. I mean the book is laughable. The book is just gassy and pompous and just fraudulent as hell and just dumb. Well, and, and I, I couldn't believe it when I read it. It was like, Dad, how can <laughs> you believe this? How can this be possible? My dad was an intelligent man. And I, it was just, you know, fear trumps all, I think. Let me just ask you about, so there are two quotes I want to ask you about. So you say of, of Harold Percival, he says sex literally led to the existence of vermin. And he says in time, not only will we have perfect sexless bodies, but we'll also have four brains, one in our pelvis, one in our abdomen, one in our thorax, and one in our, <laughs> one in our head. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, how, do, how does sex literally lead to the existence of vermin? Just for start. Well, I mean, how Percival explains it, I don't know, but it's the source of all evil, essentially. And, and, and it's a variation. I mean, you know, you can find this throughout the history of human thought, right? I mean, he's, he's not alone. I mean, all you have to do is look at any major um, Christian or, or any religious thinker almost in the history of the world they're they're all saying that the body is 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 dangerous the body is bad and sexual desires are the path to uh, ruin and evil and wickedness and we are to transcend our bodies that sexual desires are are to be overcome um percival just really really runs with it um and claims that the other guy you know if you're talking about somebody like plato or 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 paul or saint augustine i mean they don't just flat out say you know what eventually it's just going to go away you know your sex organs are just going to fall off and you're going to become sexless and that's the great thing that's the thing to look forward to harold percival because he's kind of a He's a bit of a he's a he's got a little bit of L. Ron Hubbard to him. Do you know what I mean? There's kind of fantastic things of you know people riding around on flying fish and, and you know being blue people you know who can live underwater and it's kind of crazy science fictiony stuff. Um, but but he he will, he goes that far that that's essentially going to be kind of heaven on earth when sexuality goes away. I mean, and you, as I said, you, you, 
you, you th- this book includes all these back and forth arguments between you and your dad. And you make a lot of really good points. I mean, I'm totally in your corner on this one, but um, like like you say, for example, I mean, part of this belief system seems to be that basically everything is that human thought causes everything to happen or creates everything. Yeah. And you you say, Dad, you know, the universe began 14 billion years ago. And humans have been around for like maybe a hundred thousand years or so. Yeah. So how could human thought have created everything? <laughs> like what was going on before humans evolved? Which seems right. like a devastatingly effective argument to me. But. <laughs> You'd think, but not really. Um, no, I mean, y- y- right? Humans didn't exist on planet Earth, but that doesn't mean they didn't exist somewhere in the heavens from the very start and again you know it just sort of dovetails into in 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 many you know my dad didn't consider himself a religious guy he was brought up in this extremely religious environment his mother was a christian scientist and which is a crazy belief system in its own right so he was a little bit primed for it i guess but he thought he'd gotten away from it but but he didn't because so much of what he believed is is um kind of links up with stuff that's in uh, Christianity, the idea that at the very beginning, not humans, but, you know, there's there's this timeless sort of quality to it, and God's in the heavens with the angels, I guess, is the story. They're there from the very beginning, I think. So it's kind of a weird variation on that. It's not angels. It's actual human beings who are like up in the heavens and they create. And and also, I mean, weirdly, the reason he thought he'd gotten away from religion is for all of the complexity and density of these ideas. He never really believed in a God figure, which I always thought was very weird. It's like, I don't get it, Dad. Like, who did this? This is a bizarre architecture you're proposing here. How did this happen? You know, it's not like evolution did it, because I mean, it's not like my dad wouldn't have believed in evolution, because he, he, he would have. He wasn't exactly that. But he wouldn't have believed. But like, if you've got humans 14 billion years ago living in the heavens, creating the universe, I don't like, how does that happen? What, like, what is the logic of that? I, I never grasped it. I mean, it does seem that I don't know why, but it it seems like a lot of these religious things are just kind of hard coded into the human brain or like, yeah, you know, I'm like just the idea, like, like this, the, the new thought idea that just basically like if I, think about something, it's more likely to happen. If I wish for something to happen, it's more likely to happen. If I speak something out loud, it's more likely to happen. And that seems like, it doesn't seem seem to me that that's culture necessarily. It seems like that's kind of like inherent in the human brain and you have to kind of be educated out of that. It's you're sort of fighting against human nature to try to get people to think rationally and scientifically. Uh, I I think you're totally right, Dave. Sadly, I I believe that that's true. These things just, they are deeply embedded in human nature because i think it's very scary to be a human being and we do know we're going to die and that's a really heavy thing for a creature to know and have to live with Um, as far as we know none of our fellow travelers on this planet experience the same thing they might but they, they may not it may just be us and um so the body's going to die. The body's going to give out. Therefore, the bodies get away from it. You know, it's 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 not good. Go to the soul. Run to the soul. The soul. That's the thing. But you're right. These are really, really, really difficult things to overcome. And whether that'll ever happen, <laughs> who knows? I mean, the thing, the points your dad makes that sort of seem most forceful to me is uh, at one point he says, to you, what exactly do you get out of all this disbelief? How does it in any way benefit you? Yeah. And there's another part where he says, you seem to like to make fun of things. That apparently makes them less scary for you, but that doesn't work for everyone. It doesn't work for me. And yeah. those are, I think, pretty compelling points. I mean, they at least, um, you know, warrant a serious answer. Um, I, I agree. And, and, and I'm not sure I had a serious answer, to tell you the truth. Um, what do I get out of it? I don't know, uh, really. I mean, I would say um, the ability to maybe, I, I don't know. Anything that I would say would, I think, just be really self-serving. I, I don't know that I ever had an answer for that. Um, 
and in terms of people need different strategies to get through this life and I, I do I like to laugh at things for me because I'm I've had a lot of fear in my life a lot of anxiety in my life I mean it's kind of genetic it was both nature and nurture because that guy's my dad right and and my mom had a shitload of fears too it's a very fear-based family so a very very anxious worried kid and for me when I realized that if I was laughing at something, that just instantly shrank it down and I could get my head around it and I didn't feel so scared. Well, that was great. That was like, that was like liberation in a way. Um, I don't think that worked for him. I mean, even though he loved to laugh and he had a, a great, great sense of humor, he, he actually did. And it manifested itself in many ways throughout life, his life. I, I, I don't, that clearly, um, that was not going to do it for him. So I, I don't know that I had a good response to that either. I don't think I do on the page. And I think I don't, I, I don't on the page because I didn't in real life. I mean, the, the way I sort of think about it is that when I start thinking about after I die and contemplating the vertiginous eons ahead that I won't be there for, one thing that helps me is I think about the vertiginous eons before I ever was born right. and how spectacularly, statistically it, it, unlikely it, it was that I would ever be born or ever, mm-hmm. you know, live to see one day, let alone decades of them. Yeah. And those sort of vertiginous stretches uh, sort of cancel each other out or balance each other out in a way. Right. Right. I mean, was it horrible that you know i was born in 1959 is like well where was i in 1850 where was i in 1650 well nowhere <laughs> i mean I, I didn't exist and where will i be in 2160 or 22 well nowhere you know same there's if you can embrace the beauty of the vertiginous eons on either side of us that we get this moment that we're not here for very long. We all know that anybody who's an adult kind of grasps that we're not here for very long. We get a moment, we get a chance. If we're lucky, we get, we, we get a chance. Some people, you know, life's brutally unfair and some people don't get a very good chance, but some people do. You get your moment to live. You get to experience this incredible uh, world that we live in that really is, yeah, it's scary and it's brutal and it's difficult. It's also really beautiful and really, uh, there's kind of profoundly, um, fascinating things and it's mysterious. I think if you can appreciate the, or love even the mystery of it, then I, that's not so bad, you know? There's something kind of good about that. Uh, I think that needing to sort of tell some story to yourself to reassure yourself that, well, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to continue existing more or less forever, which was another thing that I always found weird, you know, like, well, why, why, why do you need to continue forever? Why is this not enough? Why is this life that we get? Why is it not enough? Why do you have to keep going? What are you, what are you going to do? Like, what, what is, I never grasped the point of that. And I, and I don't to this day. I will say, though, that I mean, I do, I'm, and I'm not putting a lot of hope in this, but I do sort of like the, uh, you know, if you know Nick Bostrom's uh, uh, simulation hypothesis, where he basically says, you know, well, maybe we're living in a computer simulation, because <laughs> if a computer simulation is possible, then it's more likely than not than that we're in one, because there would be lots of simulations and only one underlying reality. Yeah. So I sort of. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> maybe. So I sort of imagined like, oh, maybe, you know, after, after I die, they'll, you know, they're like, okay, good work for whatever we needed you for, for, for the simulation or whatever. And now we'll just shuffle you off to some uh, chat room or something. You can choose what you, (laughs) there'd be a lot of MMOs you can play or like whatever you want to do, you know, and I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't uh, put a lot of money on that, but (laughs) you know, at least it doesn't require you to believe that like evolution never happened or like all all these sort of crazy things that uh, a lot of the existing religions uh, ask of you. Yeah, very true. Very true. Um, 
I thought it was very interesting, you know, having read all these Richard Matheson books, it was kind of interesting to find these things out about him, about his, you know, his his personal life and stuff, because I guess it had never, I mean, I had, I had read one time I saw The Shrinking Man described as the best book about loneliness ever, ever mm. written. Mm-hmm. But it, it, I guess it had never sort of consciously occurred to me that basically all of his characters have no friends or sidekicks. Uh, occasionally there's a wife or something, but, mm-hmm. but his characters are, are all sort of alone. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about that? Um, yeah, I, I mean, my dad, he had a hard time connecting with other people and he said to me, and I, you know, I, it's a, my last significant uh, interaction with my dad occurred about six, seven months before he died. So he would have been mm, 86. This was election day, 2012. And I went down to visit him and my mom because my mom was having some health issues. And I, and I said he had a rocking chair that he would sit in a lot uh, when he was older in sort of the den um, in front of the TV. And he'd, he'd often have the TV on to something, the news usually, I guess. And so I'm sure it was on. And, and so we just sat there together for, for a pretty long time. And, and, and I, I held his hand because he liked that. He liked it if, if you held his hand. And I, I said, how are you doing, Dad? And he said, and I'm going to imitate his voice a little bit. I feel, I feel hollow. And I said, and which was strange. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I've never been close to anyone in my life. Which I thought was a pretty heavy thing. And so I, I didn't really, I didn't really say anything. I wasn't really sure. I wasn't really sure what to say. And he said, I've never understood other people's feelings. And that was it. And then he just kind of stared forward, like in his own thoughts. I think that's what it was like to be him. And, uh, you know, was, did my dad have narcissistic traits? Yeah, he did for sure. Um, he was pretty self, he was pretty self-involved in a lot of ways. Um, I think the fear did him in, in a lot of ways. I think he was maybe partially scared of opening himself up to other people. Um, but, and he wasn't always lonely by the way, because, um, he was pretty social weirdly. I mean, he and my mom had a lot of friends. They socialized a lot, but, but they were friends. I don't know whether he had a close friend is the thing. I'm not sure there was anyone that he could actually open up to. I'm not sure he ever had another man that he could actually, reveal himself to and talk openly to about his feelings. And I, and I, and I just sadly don't think he and my mom ever really figured it out. I think they were both kind of scared and wounded and deeply insecure. Um, you know, animals got through that can happen. People who are, who have a hard time, uh, getting close to other human beings sometimes can get, can get close to animals because it's, mm, I don't know, safer. And my dad, um, he loved uh, animals and he loved, you can see it, it's right on the page. I mean, look at the way the dog is written in I Am Legend. I mean, it's, uh, my dad's written a lot of, a lot of great scenes. That's probably the scene that make, that I think is the most, is the saddest, the most heartbreaking is, is when Neville finds that dog. He had tremendous feelings for dogs and then his being reunited with um, Katie, the dog, in What Dreams May Come is also pretty vivid. Um, he loved dogs, and and when he was old, he had a, a cat um, that would sit on his lap, and and you know he loved he loved that cat. I think there was an essential uh, aloneness to him, yeah, and and sometimes lonely, and some you know he liked being alone. I mean, I mean, this is a guy who went down to his his little office, which was a converted, you know, uh, barn essentially, and um, he'd be in his office for eight hours by himself and that, and he loved it, you know, or he needed it. I mean, that's how he, you know, he thrived on it. So, um, yeah, I don't know. That's, I'm not sure I answered your question. No, no, that's, that's really good. I'll just explain if you haven't read, I am legend. There's this sequence where 
So you have the, as we said, there's the, the last man on earth and he's surrounded by vampires. And there's a part where this dog comes to his yard and he's trying to kind of lure it closer with food and it keeps coming back, but he can never get it to come too close to him. And then at some point the dog stops coming around and he doesn't know what's happened to it or, or what's going on. And that, that's definitely one of the parts of the book that really sticks in my memory the most, you know, just like 20 years later, that's, that whole part is just burned into my yeah. brain. Yeah. I remember the first time I read it and I was probably, yeah, I was probably 12 because once I read Hell House, then I started reading all the novels. So I was probably 12 and I, and I hit the ending of that chapter. And I burst into tears. I just couldn't believe it. And I was like, Dad, when he came up from his office, Dad, how could you do that? <laughs> and he said, well, it was just right for the story, which, of course, it was. I mean, he was correct. But it's a, it's a very powerful chapter. There was also, I had this, this sort of interesting experience where when I was a kid, you know, there was this revival of the Twilight Zone. And so they had an episode called Button Button. Yeah. And it's an adaptation of a Richard Matheson story. And, and the premise is that there's this young married couple and the stranger comes to the door with this box with a button on it. And he tells them, if you press the button, you get a million dollars and someone you don't know will die. Mm -hmm. And they argue about it for a while, but they end up pushing the button. And then the guy comes back and he's like, here's your million dollars. And they say, and someone has died. And he says, yes, someone has died. And they say, uh, and he takes the button back and, and they say, what's going to happen to the button now? And he's like, oh, I'll give it to some somebody else. And they say, who? And he says, it's it's no one you know, with uh, the implication that the next person is going to kill them if they oh. push the button. Right. And I always thought that was such a perfect TV episode and such a perfect ending. And then years later, I read the original Richard Matheson story, and the ending is completely different. Yeah. And uh, I was kind of, and, and I, 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 I assumed that he would have thought, oh, the the TV ending, they they really improved the ending you know they came up with how it should have ended but then i read that he thought he, he thought they'd ruined the, the story <laughs> he would have never thought that improved. anyone improved <laughs> his stuff no the best it got was mm, they did all right you know that, that that's as good as it got they did they did okay you know like steven spielberg yeah he did a pretty good job with Dwayne. yeah he did a, he did a pretty good job with it but he's just honestly filming the script um and anything that didn't didn't work out now they blew it they blew it that was that was my dad <laughs> But so, so what happens in the original story is that after they push the button, the husband like gets run over by a train or something. Yeah. And then the stranger says, well, to the wife, like, oh, well, did you ever really know your husband? Which I always thought was kind of dumb. But like now understanding how he felt, I'm like, yeah. okay, that makes a lot more sense that that w ending would have resonated with him in a way that it doesn't with me. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, uh, my dad would say... If you want to know me, if anybody's interested in knowing me, they should read my work. And, you know, it's true. Maybe it's true for anyone who's a, a serious writer or any writer of any kind. I'm not sure. It, it definitely is true for him. He was a hard guy. to. He was, he was in some ways, he was a hard guy to get close to. Um, not exactly. I mean, I'll, the truth is I was really close to the guy for like 25 years. Like I was really close to him as a kid. Uh, uh, and we talked endlessly about all kinds of stuff. So I wouldn't have said if somehow you know, either my dad dies when I'm 25 or somehow I die when I'm 25. As I'm dying, I'm going to think, Jesus, I had the greatest dad of all time. And we talked about everything and we were super, super close. It only, you know, it turned at a certain point. He he could be accessed. You, you, you could get close to him, but it had to be done in a certain way, I think. His, his ego had to be mm, sort of... Uh, addressed and taken care of i mean did you ever just say like um you know let's just agree to disagree on the religion stuff and not talk about it anymore and just talk about baseball and things like that or was it like <laughs> that was so much a part of him that you <laughs> we should have dave <laughs> we say we certainly should have that would have been a smart thing to do but no I, I mean i never said it and i don't remember him saying it either we just knocked heads and because he would because he was, you know, just uh, oh, my belief system, you know, and he'd just say something. We'd get together and he'd say something that I guess was innocuous that connected up with his belief system. And it would just trigger me. And I'd just start, you know, basically saying, well, I think that's bullshit, you know, or I'd say something 
that would maybe trigger him and get him sort of annoyed. And, and we, it was, you know, it's not like every single conversation we had in the last whatever, 25, 30 years of his life was, they were all arguments, but um, a lot of them were, a lot of them were, you know, would we talk about the Dodgers sometimes? Yeah, yeah, we would. We would talk about the Dodgers sometimes. We couldn't really talk about movies anymore because our tastes started to diverge. He would say, oh, you should, did you see this? It was wonderful. And I'd say, I thought it was a piece of shit. Dad. <laughs> and so, you know, like we'd get into it about that or we didn't agree about what we thought was good, actually. And, uh, you know, baseball was a place where we could still, we could still kind of just be in sync with each other. So that was maybe the last place. Do you think that, is that cause you were an Aries rising? <laughs> I, think, a lot of the... I, I think so. <laughs> you know, he didn't want to, I think my dad, I think he basically liked me and we were close and so when I started turning into this thing that he didn't really understand, like my sweet kind of loving, uh, attentive son, who's now become this sort of obstreperous, disagreeable young man, you know, which is kind of true in a way. That is kind of how it played out. Um, I don't think he wanted to just go, well, he's an asshole. You know, I mean, he, he did say at one point, he said, oh, I feel like you tricked me. <laughs> Which I thought was kind of funny. Like I tricked him. I pretended to be a sweet boy for a long time when I wasn't really, you know, I was, I was just waiting to come out as the kind of difficult personality I was. Oh, maybe that's even true in a way. I don't know. But if he wanted to let me off the hook, and I think he did in a, in a pretty meaningful way, he would say, you have a very difficult chart, you know, because I'm, I'm, we're both Pisces, right? So he loved that. I mean, I, I mean, they, they were both Pisces that we were kind of the same. We're kind of kindred spirits. We understand each other, you know, but I've got Aries rising. Okay. That's really difficult, right? That's really bad. That creates a very conflicted personality <laughs> and it makes me very uh, hard to deal with from his standpoint. So he's blaming my astrological chart, I think, for, for me being difficult. Well, but it seems like the two of you are, are really the same in a lot of ways. It's just you've chosen different positions to stake out, but like he's the biggest disciple of uh, Harold Percival and, and you've written multiple books about how religion is all bullshit. So it's kind of like, <laughs> yes. you know, yeah, I think that's right. I think we just, once we started butting heads, there was no exit essentially. And that's unfortunate. It would have been nice in many ways if we could have gotten back to what we had when I was a kid and a, and a teenager, because it was really lovely. And I, and I really enjoyed it. Those were very sweet, long, enjoyable days that we spent together, you know, but it, it just, uh, there, the, it, it's like the cave just sort of caved in, you know, and there was no way back. You say in the book that like the family in what dreams may come is just undisguised your family. Yeah. Like, what was that like, uh, reading that book? Well, it was weird. I mean, I knew what was coming because, you know, obviously, I mean, when he was writing it, I was like, 17 or something and I was living at home I was in high school and so he would he would talk about it and he would he would he didn't talk at length about what he was writing but he he did you know he, I I knew he was writing this book where we were all going to be characters and by pretty much by name I mean he uses my siblings he uses everybody's middle name and then he takes my name and he gives it to his character basically um, and then he gives me, he takes my, my actual name is Christian. Um, so he shrinks it down to Ian. So he becomes Chris and I become Ian. And, um, it, but he would say along the way, he'd say, Oh, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to like it. You're going to be pleased with it. You know? And I, I mean, I, 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 I was, you know, I'm, I'm his adoring youngest son in the book, which I was at the time. I mean, it's a very accurate representation of who I was at the time. And I just weep at, you know, cause he dies at the very beginning of the book and it's about what happens to him. And I just weep throughout and I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm just traumatized by which, which is totally true. I would have been, um, the part of the book that kind of threw me 
and it it definitely did. I couldn't. I couldn't. It w- it was maybe the beginning of something of me starting to uh, look at his belief system a little differently. Is was was ha- the nature of the story itself, and specifically how he wrote how he treated my mom. Um, he dies at the beginning of the book, and my mom, uh, she can't live without him. She's so distraught. She's so um, she's in such anguish that she kills herself because um, she can't live without him. And because she kills herself, and this is just part of my dad's belief system, she goes to hell. Okay, she doesn't go to the worst hell because there's a really, really terrible hell that he journeys through, but it's hell. She's in kind of like her own personal hell in a way. And he goes to hell. He journeys to hell from heaven because, of course, he's gone to heaven and to save her, which he, at the very, very last minute, he manages to do in a, in a pretty interesting scene between the two of them. It's a pretty, it's the, it's the climax of the book. But I remember saying to him, like, Dad, I, I don't understand. Like, you die and go to heaven, and then mom kills herself and goes to hell. Like, I, that's a weird story to tell. I don't, I, and he was like, oh, what, what else could it be? And I was like, well, I don't know. Like, you could go to hell, right? And, and, and oh, that makes no sense. That makes no, no sense. Um, that's not what his voice sounded like. I'm, I'm, I'm doing the old, the old man voice, and he didn't sound like that at that time. Um, but that's my impersonation of my dad, I guess. But it, I thought that was weird, and it, and it kind of pissed my mom off. She didn't, she didn't really like it. Um, <laughs> it. It was weird for her because there's this kind of long love letter to her at the end. But, you know, she kills herself because she can't live without him and goes to hell and he comes from heaven and saves her. Yeah, it's kind of strange. I was, I was going to ask, I mean, what did the other family members think of his, his belief system? Did they sort of humor him or did they buy into it or did they choose to just not talk about it? Or? I think they all agree. I think my siblings all agree. I think they all, with him, that is. I, I think they, I think that... They believe that, you know, my parents are in heaven somewhere now, strolling hand in hand through some lush meadow with our dogs, you know, who've died running along next to them. As far as I know, that's what they believe, that, that I, they, they, they bought it. Um, the only one in the family who kind of didn't, or at least at the very least was highly ambivalent, is my mom who was fairly skeptical, but not very confident in her own beliefs. Um, unlike me, where I just hit a certain age, I was just like, this is bullshit. I don't believe any of this. You're, this is just bullshit. And this is completely fear-based. And this is all made up. There's no evidence for any of this. Um, and my mom was not sure. And, and that's in what dreams may come, right? Be she goes to hell in part because she's killed herself, but she also goes to hell in a weird way because she doesn't believe in the afterlife. So that's the irony of it, right? She's in the afterlife, but she doesn't believe there's an afterlife. So her personal hell is she's stuck in this place where she, she doesn't, she's in a, 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 her, a kind of a dark purgatory, but it is hell. Um, so my mom was a bit of a skeptic and uh, which was very frustrating to him. He hated that, and he hated that I didn't agree with him because I th- because he and I were very close. But I, as far as I know, and I'm not close with any of my siblings, and maybe this is part of it. I think they all agree with him. Did you show the book to as you were working on it to anyone in your family or friends of his or, or anything like that? The this book, the conversations with the yeah. Um, I sh- well. No, I didn't. I mean, you know, my dad's obviously dead. I mean, he died nine years ago. So he saw the first part of it, the the, the sort of the comedic side of it. But the memoir side of it, um, my mom died five years ago. And I don't know what she would have thought of it. I think she would have said, you can't publish that, Chris. You know, I think that she would have said something like that. You know, don't tell. Those are family secrets, Chris. Um, uh, my siblings would not be in favor of it. Um, not at all. So no, I certainly didn't share it with them. I mean, sort of what have you gotten reactions? I mean, it's not out yet, but I guess no. did you, what sort of reactions have you gotten from editors or just anyone who's, who's looked at it? I mean, I think some people, uh, 
you know, if you're interested in my dad, if Richard Matheson is a character of interest to you, if his stories are, are, have been important to you in any way, then I think that there are, you know, I, I have a, a very specific vantage point on this guy. I mean, I was his kid and, and, and I was really, really close to him for a long time. You know, as for the comedy part, I, I, I don't know. Either people think it's funny or they don't. I mean, I, 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 I don't, I'm not sure about that, but I, I think if, if one, uh, that those who are interested in Richard Matheson are, are find that this is of interest. Yeah, it definitely gave me a, a completely different window on on these books that like I, you know that I read in college that I read at yeah. sort of this formative age. And I did think the comedy. I was I was as I was reading the comedy, I sort of dis- started describing it to to my girlfriend, and you know the the, the God character is uh uh you know really um what's the word sort of uh hypersensitive about uh you know his, his writing abilities and stuff like that i was just like cracking up as i was describing it so i was like yeah okay this is obviously obviously really funny you know the joke of these books is uh conversations with god specifically i mean obviously these guys are talking to themselves you know i mean it's just like it's so evident that they're just talking to themselves but then they make this ridiculous claim that somehow the creator of the universe is talking to them and it's this dialogue you know somehow has chosen them to be a messenger for some message that inevitably ends up being really banal and really lame and obvious and i always find that very funny it's kind of interesting. To, I mean, the the subtitle it's sort of missing the Oxford comma, so it's like conversation or what is this? Something about uh, a memoir about Richard Matheson, comma my dad and God. Yeah. So it's kind of like Richard Matheson is both your dad and God. Yeah. So yeah. and it's and it's like it's kind of like the same thing with him growing up with um, the Christian Science and you growing up with him. It's like the th- the first ideas that you get introduced to those formative things you kind of like can never fully get away from you know no matter what what happens in your life or what you intellectually intellectualize later on yeah uh, it's it's completely true uh, and then i guess you have i don't even know if it's a choice but then it's just a matter of like well what are you going to do with those ideas you know i mean how are you gonna and you can either embrace them and build them into your own and maybe inevitably they just get in there and become part of your worldview um i think you can also kind of rebel against them a little bit and you know i'm the youngest in my family and i i think youngest kids are i believe there's a pattern of youngest kids kind of rebelling against the family narrative i don't think i'm the first i'm pretty sure i'm not the first but I think this is one of the things that really concerns me about religion is that, you know, like I'm a big believer, you know, David Hume had this this principle that you should always try to match your certainty about any proposition to the strength of the evidence yeah. for that proposition. Yeah. And I've never heard any argument from a religious apologist that either convinced me that that's not the best approach to interpreting reality or convinced me that any religion yeah. it gave you confidence that any of its propositions uh, were true. Um I- uh, but, I agree. I agree with you, Dave. I don't believe yeah. there is any evidence. Yeah. Um, but 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 so you say that because your dad was raised as a Christian in this Christian Science religion. I, I, this is, I guess, this is the thing I was going to say is that, that sort of what concerns me about religion is that when you, in in order to believe in a religion, it seems like you have to abandon that proposition of mm-hmm. apportioning your certainty to the evidence, mm-hmm. and then once you've done that, it's kind of like the guardrails are off like where are you going to end up mm-hmm. and so like the the your grandparents or whatever you know they raised your dad with this christian science belief and then he kind of like went off into this whole other mm-hmm. thing that they mm-hmm. couldn't have ever predicted and it seems right. like that's kind of the problem with mm-hmm. with religion is that you know once you've taken away those those guardrails of like let's conform our beliefs to reality as much as we can yeah you have no way of predicting what where those where those beliefs are going to go down a generation or two down the line I think you're right. And I I think if you're going to basically live uh, with the idea of some invisible reality that, well, that invisible reality can be anything. 
right? I mean, people can fill that in with anything. Um, there's just a, a, there are no guardrails on it, really. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're we're running pretty short on time. Do you have anything else you want to say about conversations with the father before I have a couple of Bill and Ted questions I want to, I want to ask you? <laughs> no, I think I'm good. Okay, cool. Okay, so so Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, one of my favorite movies. And um, one of the things I've always really liked about it is how there's the part in the movie toward the end where they need to get into the police station and they don't have keys that they would need. And yeah. they say, well, how about we have a time machine, right? How about after the whole adventure is over, we'll get our time machine and go back and steal the keys and weave them for ourselves. Yeah. And um, I've always thought this was like a really great, sophisticated science fictional idea that I had never seen in any science fiction story prior to that. And I still don't think I've really seen anything after that. Right. And I was just curious if you remember anything about how that idea came to I you as you were writing. Uh, I do. Um, it, I, I'm. Well, I think I do. I mean, it's a long time ago. We're talking 1987, so it's 35 years ago. But I, I do have some pretty specific memories. We the movie shot in in Phoenix, and uh, I I I believe we did this pretty much either on set or like the day before. I mean, this was in, written in the moment, and why the scene needed to change. I guess it didn't work. I guess what we'd written didn't work. And so I remember Ed Solomon, my partner, um, kind of throwing out this idea. And my first reaction was like, wow, that's really complicated. Is that, you know, is that going to, is that going to work? You know, I had, it just took me a minute to kind of get my head around it. And then it did, you know, it didn't take long. I, I think it was, then it was like, oh, right. Well, that's really funny. And then, and then we wrote it really, really quickly. And the jokes seemed very um, kind of fresh as when you, you know, push into new territory, you potentially can get some funny jokes because, you know, surprise, 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 the, that's comedy in many ways. And um, I, I thought they were good, good, funny jokes, but the initial, the initial idea uh, was his and he sold me on it. So all that stuff with the the garbage can and the printer and all that stuff, you were just coming up with that basically that day that you had. It was either that day or maybe it was the the day before. I mean, I don't know whether we were outside the police station. I mean, that that can't be because they had to have time to kind of figure out how to shoot it. They had they had to, but it was very very close to it. It was it was not something that we wrote like we wrote the original Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure script in in summer of 1984. So this is now the filming we're talking about uh you know March of 1987. So this is years later. Um it definitely was written in production and my memory is that it was written pretty damn close to when they were actually going to film it. That's really cool. Um, but I, I agree with you. I, I agree with you. I, it's it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It may, it may be my favorite scene in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, then my other Bill and Ted question is, um, so there's a line in the movie, this is a George Carlin, where he, he talks about Bill and Ted's music, yeah. uh, allowing meaning, meaningful contact with all forms of life from extraterrestrial beings to common household pets. And I always just wondered if uh, you ever thought about doing a Bill and Ted uh, communicate with aliens or like go into space and meet aliens movie. Did you ever, <laughs> was that ever well, on the drawing board or, or anything at any point? Um, well, we do have station the Martian in, in the second movie. So, you know, we, we there's him, um, other than him. Did we ever talk about sending them to outer space and dealing with aliens? Um, you know, we probably did. We've thrown them. We, we've considered <laughs> over the years all kinds of ridiculous kind of fish out of water situations to put them in. Um, we never wrote it. Um, I don't know that we ever even presented it to anybody, but I, I'm sure we had some discussions somewhere along the line about it. Okay, cool. And then also, just as I was doing research yesterday, I saw that you were listed as one of the writers on a Goofy movie. Yeah. That's correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I am. I mean, why that is, I don't know. I, I mean, really, <laughs> Dave, I'm, I'm, I, I'm responsible for like three sentences in that entire movie. I don't have a clue. I, I think they just... I remember at the time them saying, hey, you know, we feel like you did a pretty good job and we're going to put your name on it. Uh, and I thought, oh, all right. 
you know, cool, I'll take it, but it's not really warranted. I mean, it, it, the thing existed, and I just did kind of a polish on it. Okay, because because my my girlfriend's a millennial, and so she grew up with that movie, and she's like, because we're we're getting married in the spring. Oh, congratulations! And she's like, oh, at our wedding, we should have the song from the Goofy movie. Uh, Everyone will love it. And I have no idea what she's talking about. You know, there it has uh, it has a lot of fans. There, it's it's like when you grow up and you're a certain age, and you see a movie, man, you know, you just love it. You know, you just like gets in there and and just resonates. And I sometimes the quality of the movie is. Uh, <laughs> debatable let's say um so um do you have any other like what are you working on now or do you have any other projects uh coming up i'm working on a new book because you know that's what i do now i've kind of transitioned into book i mean i sort of keep my hand in in the movie thing a little bit but not too much you know i'm, I'm kind of working on a new book and and uh you know, actually, I don't know, Dave. You, I, you, you can cut this if you want, because I don't know if you want to. If you want your guests talking about their own podcasts, you may not. I'm, I'm not no, sure. No, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Okay, so I've got this podcast that a friend of and and I just started, which is called On the Funny, because I've had a, a lifelong fascination with comedy, which I think for me, as I said, has been a way of dealing with fear and anxiety. So I've, I've been really, really interested in, in comedy and, 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 and the funny things anyway. So I've been doing that with my friend Jacob and, and that's pretty fun too. So, so like what's the format? Do you interview people or talk we're, about? We're, we're, we have not yet so far. It's, it's the two of us and we're beginning by talking about a, uh, a show called On Cinema at the Cinema. I'm not sure you've ever heard of it. It's Tim Heidecker and Greg Turkington. They're two comedians. And I, in my book, it's like, it's one of the top five greatest comedic pieces ever created. So uh, it's on a very short list of the greatest comedy ever made. But we will, in time, probably talk about all of these great comedic things that have been created. Yeah, that sounds really cool. And uh, yeah, I definitely... Don't get upset if people start a podcast. Like I, I would be a very unhappy person uh, if that were true. Since <laughs> I like, guess everybody so. on Earth has started a podcast, pretty uh, much. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um. All right, but yeah. So why don't we wrap things up there? So we've been speaking with Chris Matheson about his book Conversations with the Father. So Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dave. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Chris Matheson for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit GeeksGuideShow.com. To learn more about your host, visit DavidBarrKirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.